uh, you know, look creative. Will, will, will uh, Boris go back to the Telegraph? Will he go back to editing The Spectator? You know, what's going to happen to Boris? He's only 58. Oh, don't feel too sorry for him. Patrick, uh, final word from you. Yeah, look, from a market's perspective, uh, um, you know, uncertainty, as Stuart was talking earlier, is, uh, is no good. Politics have not really played that strongly to markets for... Uh, for some time, but it's uh, it's a problem that is uh, you know, distracting more than uh, than I think a, a really long term impact. Okay, well, thank you all very much. You heard there, Patrick Bennett, macro strategist at CIBC World Markets, Stuart Allcroft, Asian fund management industry consultant, and our international economics correspondent Barry Wood. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio Three. Before I go, let's take one more look at the markets. In Australia, the ASX 200 slipping 0.2%. Japanese stocks, as measured by the Nikkei 225, up about half a percent. Cosby in South Korea, pretty flat now. Looks like also a flat open for the Hang Seng in just about an hour's time. Uh, do stay tuned to Radio 3. News coming up, followed by back chats with Janice Wong and Jenny Lam. The weather forecast for today, fine and very hot. A uh, maximum temperature of around 35 degrees. The very hot weather warning is in force. The outlook is for it to remain hot, very hot, with sunny periods tomorrow. A few showers in the latter part of this week. The temperature right now, 29 degrees, 74% relative humidity. Just gone 8.31. Here's Andrew Shorsky with the half-hour news. Thank you, Peter. Sri Lanka's president, Gotabaya Rajapaksa, has fled the country with members of his family following months of mass protests over the island's economic crisis. Ashans France Presse says the president's military plane has landed in the Maldives. The BBC's Raji Vadianathan is following developments from the Sri Lankan capital. There's a real party atmosphere here at Colombo Seafront, which has been a protest site for many weeks. And one of the main demands protesters had was for President Gotabaya Rajapaksa to go. Their slogan, their chant was go home Gota. Well, we now know that President Gotabaya Rajapaksa has left the country. He fled on a military jet with members of his family. We also know that the president's brother, Basil Rajapaksa, former finance minister, has also left the country. He's believed to be heading to America. Twitter says it is suing Elon Musk in an attempt to force through the completion of his $44 billion deal to buy the social media giant. On Friday, the Tesla chief announced he was retracting his offer because he wasn't given information about the number of fake and spam accounts on the platform. The lawsuit says Mr. Musk apparently believes he's free to change his mind, disrupt Twitter's operations, and destroy stockholder value. The first full series of NASA's color photos from the world's most powerful space telescope shows a section of the universe teeming with galaxies, some containing millions of stars. In one of the images, the James Webb Telescope captured a galaxy cluster, a structure containing thousands of galaxies bound by gravity. Another photo got the blue and orange ring of a planetary nebula called the Southern Ring, made of the gas and dust from a dying star. NASA Administrator Bill Nelson reiterated the, the importance of the project. It's clear that Webb represents the best of NASA. It maintains our ability to propel us forward for science, for risk-taking, for inspiration. And we don't want to ever stop exploring the heavens, nor stop daring to take another step forward for humanity. 
in the words of the famous Carl Sagan, somewhere something incredible is waiting to be known. I think those words are becoming reality. Back here at home, the hospital authority says some of its non-emergency services have been affected by the worsening pandemic situation, with almost a 1,000 COVID patients currently in hospital. Speaking at a daily press briefing, Sarah Ho, a chief manager with the HA, said this meant some non-urgent services and surgery had to be suspended or postponed. The city logged 2,767 new infections yesterday, including 211 imported cases. The news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Janice Wong and my co-host today is Jenny Lam. Good morning, Jenny. Good morning, everyone. On today's Back Chat, we're talking about challenges faced by ethnic minorities during the COVID-19 pandemic. After a new survey by Unison found that almost one in two respondents have lost their jobs during the fifth COVID wave and 14% are underemployed. The survey also found that many ethnic minority students lack access to resources that allow them to fully participate in online classes. Survey organizers also stressed that ethnic minority families overall earn much less than the general population, with 57% of them living below the 2020 poverty line. So how effective are current poverty-alleviating measures in addressing this problem? What more can be done? After 9.15, we'll look at new data on salt levels in dim sum. Let us know your thoughts, your questions and your comments on our Facebook page, Backchat at RTHK Radio 3. You can email us at backchat at rthk.hk or you can call us, of course, and our number is 233-88266. Now to uh, kick off our discussion this morning, we are joined by John Zare, the Executive Director of Unison, and uh, Pooja Kapai, a law professor at the University of Hong Kong, who is an expert on minority rights. And uh, in around 10 minutes' time, we will be joined by Dr. Rizwan Ulla, the convener of the Policy Research and Training Committee of the Equal Opportunities Commission. Good morning to the both of you. Good morning. Good and, morning. Uh, thanks for joining us on the program. Um, let's start with you, Mr. Jair. Um, what would you say is the most worrying finding uh, from your survey? Well, definitely it's uh, poverty and uh, unemployment rates really high unemployment uh, versus uh, the um, uh, unemployment rate at that time for the general population was 5.4%, uh, whereas uh, in our uh, sample is close to 50%. So but we're saying unemployment rates of, uh, of uh, ethnic minority groups are 10 times higher. Why do you think that is? Well, I, I think COVID uh, situation really affected the overall economy. In particular, uh, ethnic minority groups, because of uh, their, their lower level education or poor uh, proficiency in Chinese, or you know, uh, they, they have to overcome hurdles of uh, you know discrimination against them. So uh, those things pile up and uh, really make uh, it very difficult to retain a job. So once uh, the economy is, is not good, then they they seems to be. Um, really uh, hard hit by, by the, uh, uh, these uh, adversities. What kind of jobs are we typically talking about? Uh, across the board, uh, many uh, ethnic minorities work in the um, you know, catering business. Uh, many work in the, 
uh, bars and uh, and uh, you know dim uh, sum restaurants and 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 uh, uh, fitness centers and and so um, when those um, establishments were closed, then the unemployment and underemployment would would rise. Professor Kapai. Yes. Are, are you surprised by the survey findings? Not at all, sadly. Unfortunately, I think that what uh, we see is really um, a situation that has long been festering in Hong Kong pertaining to ethnic minorities, uh, which has simply been uh, made much more visible and obviously exacerbated even further by COVID and um, the impact that it's had uh, across the community. So whatever experiences uh, the Hong Kong um, population um, has had during these two plus years, one could um, one can see that the impact has been far, far greater for minority communities here because we've long experienced these kinds of um, uh, figures in terms of unemployment. This is not new. We've always been underemployed. We've also tended to be um, likelier to be unemployed, especially uh, in uh, you know among the youth, and we have always tended to be um, part of certain industries. So as John mentioned, right, catering, bars, hospitality industries, these tend to be our mainstay occupations. And so when crises like COVID strike, uh, it's not surprising at all that these are the communities that are hardest hit and the first to sort of go out. So what problems do you think these findings uh, actually reflect? I mean, what is the real problem? Well, the real, I think, challenge is uh, understanding how uh, the um, situation really reflects a deep-seated, entrenched uh, problem pertaining to discrimination and conscious bias and exclusion of Hong Kong's ethnic minorities. So it's a systemic issue. And as John said, you know, it starts right at the very beginning from the education system, where although ethnic minority children have the same rights as uh, other children in Hong Kong, we are not able to access those rights in a meaningful or material manner because of various barriers. And as uh, John's um, research uh, you know, through Unison shows, um, there are challenges in uh, accessing a Chinese language learning environment in order to be able to um, develop Chinese skills effectively. And this has been a longstanding problem. And as the Poverty Commission and numerous other researchers in Hong Kong have shown, um, the language uh, barrier is one of the key sort of um, factors that then has an ongoing impact in terms of access to particular schools, graduation rates, and access to higher education, and consequently the employment sectors that ethnic minorities end up in. Yeah, so we know that the government uh, did make some commitment to help ethnic minority children to learn um, Chinese, uh, the, the few policy um, addressed uh, a few years ago. Um, how effective has that been? Is that a question for me? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, in 2014, the government did introduce Chinese as a second language learning framework. My understanding is that the framework is not a curriculum in and of itself. So uh, it, it doesn't highlight sort of key learning stages and objectives, which can be used as benchmarks to track the progress of ethnic minority students in terms of developing Chinese. And so as such, we really don't have um, numbers. We don't have data 
to determine whether these measures have been effective if at all. Um, and my understanding is that although there was supposed to be a report to the Legislative Council three years after these measures were introduced, so 2017, um, we've not heard anything, uh, you know. And, and so it's very difficult. But on the ground um, uh, knowledge, you know, in terms of um, uh, community members, the impression still seems to be that the measures in place are just stopgap measures. They're not systemic. And so they're not um, coherent, they're not cohesive, and so they are not going to break uh, this cycle of what we see. And we've seen these patterns for 20-plus years from the time that I was in the education system. Uh, you know, and these um, systems uh, continue because there isn't an effective Chinese as a second language curriculum that teachers can implement. And one of the challenges is that teachers are left to develop their own materials. And obviously we know that Hong Kong teachers are so hard-pressed for time that this is very challenging to do. And you need the skills, you need training, you need an understanding of the ethnic minority community in order to be able to tailor the materials to their learning needs. So these nuances aren't um, present in the current mechanisms that have been rolled out, the initiatives. Um, so they're piecemeal measures, and they're not going to achieve the kind of long-term uh, impactful change that we're really hoping for. Right. Mr. Jie, well, let's yes. go back to your survey about uh, mm. um, the unemployed uh, in the ethnic minority group. Um, what existing measures or facilities are there to help them during uh, um, the pandemic? Um, unfortunately, nothing much. That's why we're suggesting that uh, there should be more diverse job training or more relevant uh, training in, in, in English and, and uh, so that uh, ultimately ethnic minorities may, may benefit. But uh, in addition, perhaps uh, the government should consider uh, offering some unemployment benefits um, you know, when, when, when the, they are laid off, they really need help because um, we receive uh, lots of... Um, uh, you know, comments saying that um, ethnic minorities themselves, they, they don't have enough food, they, they don't have groceries, they're living, living on savings, and they don't have jobs. So literally, we are talking about a uh, rather pervasive kind of poverty uh, that uh, ethnic minority groups are, are facing. Right. You, you just mentioned uh, maybe uh, providing unemployment benefit. And uh, we actually uh, tried to contact uh, the Labour and Welfare Bureau to get a response to uh, some of uh, our, uh, discussion, our discussion this morning. And uh, um, they did issue us a statement. It says uh, poverty alleviation is a policy priority of the government. Our philosophy in poverty alleviation is to encourage people capable of working to become self-reliant through employment while putting in place a reasonable and sustainable sustainable social security and welfare system to help those who cannot provide for themselves. So it seems like they um, won't be or they're not too keen on uh, providing benefits for, for the unemployed. Yeah, well, um, that's why uh, Nunison is uh, recommending that uh, there, there should be food bank services. And right now we know that uh, food bank services ex do exist in Hong Kong, but uh, they don't cater for um, uh, halal food options. So um, I think it's, it's obvious that if we want to really um, reduce poverty, then uh, policymakers must be more culturally sensitive so, so, so as to address the needs of um, different diverse uh, groups. Otherwise, um, even if they have services like food bank, uh, there's no use because uh, you know, it's, it's not uh, meeting the, the needs of the uh, ethnic minorities. 
All right, uh, we're now joined um, by uh, Dr. Rizwan Ula, the convener of the Policy Research and Training Committee of the Equal Opportunities Commission. And good morning, Dr. Ula. Uh, good morning, Janice, Jenny, John Che, and Puja. Thanks for joining us on the program. So we've been uh, hearing about Mr. Jay's survey that shows that almost uh, one in two ethnic minority respondents have lost their jobs during the COVID pandemic. Um, I mean, um, Professor Kapai says it's, it's not surprising at all to her. What about you? I mean, is it surprising given that the, the number of cases of discrimination against uh, ethnic minorities did seem to increase during the pandemic, according to the EOC? Well, I, I think uh, personally, uh, I do not think it's uh, surprising because uh, back then we have done research back in, you know, uh, since 2012 until, you know, 2019, 20. Uh, these numbers uh, are nothing new. I mean, uh, it's reappearing and there, there's been a lot of research and uh, the focus has to be on development and uh, see how we can uh, make changes to these uh, long pertaining issues that Puja, Professor Puja Kapai has mentioned with regards to, you know, the uh, access to the Chinese language education and as well as uh, employment. What, what kind of changes do you believe will be helpful specifically? Well, I, I think, uh, like, uh, there's no one-size-fits-all for all the measures because when we look at the, uh, the, the, the sphere of ethnic minority, it's very diverse and it requires a differentiated approach uh, in looking all all this uh, complicated issue uh, but of course you need to find an intervention point and one of the point was you know uh, with the uh, Chinese uh, language education for ethnic minority where in 2009 uh, uh, we had uh, we, we conducted a research uh, involving different community leaders and uh, heavy weight individuals in the ethnic minority community uh, where we suggested uh, numerous uh, measures, you know, uh, as far as uh, language learning is concerned, to develop a uh, full-fledged Chinese as a second language curriculum, which is complete with specific pedagogy, corresponding teaching tools, textbook, uh, systematic teacher training. And with the pressure, actually, the government, the Education Bureau, has completed uh, sets of uh, materials in this regard. And to go on further, uh, I, I, we also suggested, you know, we need to provide uh, and explore uh, help from language experts to introduce and improve how to deliver Chinese as a second language uh, a way of, you know, learning for the ethnic minority, not only in school, but also with their own self-regulated learning, like providing some conditions where this can happen. And as far as uh, teacher training, we also suggested, you know, how we can provide incentives, you know, to make teachers find teaching on Chinese speaking students become a mission and an aspiration rather than, you know, uh, teachers feel, oh, uh, I'm teaching on Chinese speaking students. And attitude is changing. And I personally went to a workshop, you know, uh, a month ago, organized by Education Bureau, talked to 30, 40 teachers uh, on how to do their career life planning and how to look at uh, non-Chinese speaking students' uh, home dynamics, and in particular, how to engage parents of uh, different backgrounds, in particular looking at their education level and Chinese proficiency, and how we can adopt a differentiated approach uh, in helping them. And uh, uh, as far as the on, like in the past uh, few years, what I see 
market in the community, there is a lot, a lot of uh, concern, and it's overwhelming concern. But it lacks the synergy where we can, you know, get one plus one equals to eleven rather than two, or one plus one is still static. This is uh, uh, like my view. Uh, as far as the uh, Chinese uh, language learning is concerned. Okay. Um, uh, let's go back to John Dad. So, Chinese learning mm. and education is one thing. What about job opportunities? Is that a is that an inequity that um, for um, minorities? Uh, can, uh, I still go, uh, can I still go back to the issue of uh, Chinese as a second language? Because uh, uh, the key word is Chinese as a second language framework, not policy. We want overall planning, so we want uh, the government to have a policy, uh, which can be, you know, the curriculum, can be uh, the, uh, resources, timeline for teachers' training, uh, assessment, and so on. They are all lacking. We are only looking at curriculum itself, which is obviously not enough. If we want to push uh, Chinese as a second language, there must be a formal paper and overview of what we've done and what we'll do in future. And, 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 and certain, certainly we need objectives, goals, and, and timelines. Um, we haven't seen that so far. All right. Uh, Mr. Chair, I have an email here. It's from Vic. Um, he says, ethnic minorities who have lived for generations in Hong Kong have failed to assimilate into Hong Kong society out of their own choice. Some prefer to live in fringes of the society in ghetto-like communities, not adapting to the Hong Kong's Hong Kong way of life. Lack of language skills is a major impediment. While part of the problem is the government not taking any proactive steps to assimilate them and welcome them into mainstream society. Partially it is due to the lifestyle and ethnic and ethnic minorities choose to adapt and the larger families they tend to have, even without the affordability to feed, educate and raise the children into individuals contributing to civic society. And uh, that email is from Vic. So, um, Mr. Day, you talked about yep. a lack of uh, policy by, uh, from the government. But um, from this email, this uh, what Vic is saying, it's... Um, it, it might be their own choice, the, the ethnic minorities here. It's, it's them that's not sort of integrating into society. Um, well, we don't see it that way. Um, nobody asked for social seclusion, segregation. Um, the government in the past, well, if we look at education itself, uh, they rely too heavily on designated schools. Although they change their name, but the contents are the same. A huge amount of uh, ethnic minorities in one school. So uh, what kind of social integration would they have? Would they help learning the culture, the language? Well, they, they, you know, they have to be physically integrated. What I'm saying is that we are not preparing them physically, socially, educationally to, to be integrated into the society. And furthermore, well, Hong Kong is not exactly a friendly society for, in terms of uh, treating ethnic minority people. Uh, the other day, I, I, I took a taxi. I have to tell you this story. Um, the taxi, uh, I was, you know, we were traveling in uh, Sensor Po, and uh, some ethnic minority uh, people were you know, uh, waiting for a taxi. And the taxi driver told me, well, they're going to be waiting there for a long time. So I asked why. He said, well, we're not going to pick them up. That, that's trouble. I said, well, you know, that's not nice, you know, doing this. I said, well, you know, nobody wants to ask for trouble, you know, they're troublemakers. So I, I think some negative stereotypes still 
go on in Hong Kong. There's plenty of discrimination practices going on. And, uh, well, you know, the thing is, have we educated the public enough? Well, that's the job of EOC, by the way. Do you agree, Dr. I'm Owen? sorry, can I jump in here? Of I really course, just have of to course. say, I mean, as an ethnic minority who's been in Hong Kong for generations, and I'm sure Dr. Ulla feels the same way, I, I think that the question really represents a very misguided, deep-seated stereotype of ethnic minority communities in Hong Kong. Uh, I think that one has to uh, understand that we live in a certain context, we live in a certain environment, and some of the factors, you know, um, John has just highlighted for us, these are the realities that ethnic minorities face every day. And, uh, you know, Dr. Ulla and I are in the positions that we're in as a result of a great deal of hard work and every attempt to um, to participate and uh, help the community, give back to the society, you know, but there has to be a preparedness within the community as well. And the government is responsible for creating opportunities for inclusion and setting up structures that do not divide, that do not exclude, and do not consistently push down particular communities. But um, it is sad that we still have these structures very much in place in Hong Kong. And as John says, right from trying to get on a taxi all the way through to entering university programs where there's a complete lack of clarity as to what are the eligibility requirements if you do not possess the necessary um, DSE score in Chinese. So I think that, you know, this question itself um, demonstrates the problem that we have in Hong Kong and why it's so important to start at the very beginning with education, not just of ethnic minorities. Ethnic minorities cannot integrate if the majority population isn't also educated to be receptive to ethnic minority communities. And it has to begin with uh, wiping out these very deep-rooted stereotypes. Dr. Okay, so, so Professor Kapai, perhaps you can share with us, I mean, you know, you know, with the Department of Law of Hong Kong, you, and you, you've been in Hong Kong for generations, perhaps you can share with us how, what are some of the challenges you had and what is your story in breaking through some of those barriers? I'm not sure five minutes will allow me to do that, but I mean, I, I have to say that it really, uh, at every step, you face somebody who tells you you're not going to be able to do it. And for me, maybe it's a it's a, um, an expression of my character. The more that people said to me, you can't become a lawyer, you won't be able to go to university, uh, you won't be able to enter a profession in Hong Kong, the more I wanted to do it. But I have to say that it came at a great deal of, um, it came at great sacrifices, personal and professional. Uh, and it sh this, should, this should not be how the pathway to becoming successful in Hong Kong should be. There should be an equal playing field. There should be equality of access to opportunities. And we should have an encouraging environment where ethnic minority children, all of whom in Hong Kong have aspirations to be doctors and lawyers and pilots and bankers, whatever they want to be, teachers, they should all be able to realize those goals because they have the talent. But it's just that, you know, we are stigmatized and there's a deep-rooted bias within the community. I've done research on unconscious bias, and it's very clear. Our attitudes towards South Asians in Hong Kong are so deeply entrenched and negative that even unconscious bias training, if it's not properly designed, cannot eradicate those biases. All right, and uh, so Professor when we Kupai? see these figures about um, unemployment or poverty, we think it's our own, you know, we think it's ethnic minorities' fault. All right, we Professor have to Kupai? examine systems and structures. <laughs> 
I'm sorry to have to cut you off there. Um, well, we're going to come up to the uh, news very shortly. I just want to quickly uh, get a response from uh, Dr. Ula in response to uh, um, Mr. Jair's earlier question about uh, whether the EFC is doing enough to, to help uh, um, educate people not to uh, discriminate against uh, ethnic minorities. Dr. Ula? Uh, well, I think uh, what uh, John, uh, the remark of uh, John was uh, it's uh, EOC's job. Uh, I think uh, partly uh, correct and uh, partly, as I would say, as a, myself more than as an EOC member, I think this is a job of EOC plus all our community leaders and also various community organizations. A lot has been done as far as research. Now it's actually materializing things in the development stage. We have to create impact, critical mass. That should be the focus because different communities are progressing at different rates among our ethnic minorities. And we have to see which community within the EM community is more vulnerable. We should put more resources in that angle and help them. I mean, uh, maybe the news is coming, maybe after that, I also like to share like my own upbringing, uh, which can also share some and shed some light uh, on the uh, stories of, uh, of EM uh, All right. looking at these issues. All right, yeah. All right Dr. Ula, um, I'm afraid we have to take a short break for the news. Uh, thanks again for uh, joining us. Uh, that's uh, um, Dr. Rizwan Ula, the convener of the Policy Research and Training Committee of the Equal Opportunities Commission, and uh, also John Jair, the Executive Director of Unison, and also many thanks to Professor Kapai. Professor Pooja Kapai is an HKU law professor who is an expert on minority rights. And uh, we'll continue our discussion after the news when we'll be joined by a social worker and uh, also a program officer from the Hong Kong Community Networks Link Center. And uh, after 9.15, we'll look at the latest data on the salt content of dim sum. Now, if you want to ask questions or just share your views on today's topics, remember you can give us our, a call. Our number is 233-88266. And uh, right now, the temperature is uh, 30 degrees at the observatory and relative humidity, 71%. Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Wednesday morning with Jenny Lam and me, Janice Wong. In the first part of the program, we heard about the findings from a survey carried out by Unison on ethnic minorities here that show that almost one in two respondents have lost their jobs during the fifth COVID wave. Now, uh, before we continue with our discussion, remember, we want to hear what you think. You can leave your questions and your comments on our Facebook page, Backchat at RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or you can call Call us, of course, and our number is 233-88266. Still with us on the program is John Zier, the Executive Director of Hong Kong Unison. And joining us now, we have Ansa Majid Malik, a social worker from the Kowloon Karachas Community Centre, who is also a member of the Commission on Poverty. And we also have Gigi, a program officer at the Hong Kong Community Networks Link Centre. Good morning to all of you. Hi, and uh, thanks Hello, for joining us. Thanks for joining us this morning. Um, Ms. Malik, uh, can you first uh, tell us a bit about the uh, difficulties faced by ethnic minorities during the uh, COVID pandemic? Right. Um, actually, during the fifth wave, uh, we have seen large increase in number of service users at our center uh, who seek financial assistance due to sudden unemployment, cut down wages, and even changes in from 
I mean, took part time from a full time employment as well. So it affected the whole family's uh, the income and the expenses which they have to. How does the situation compare to a pre-pandemic period? Uh, fifth wave, as we all know, it hit it hard. Uh, and unemployment, it still increased. So yes, it was actually um, really bad for a lot of families. And because it also increased a huge number of cases in, so- in the whole community, so it, it hit it hard. Mm-hmm. So, Gigi, you with the Hong Kong Community Networks Link Center. Can you share some of the on those underground stories that you've seen during the fifth wave that hit ethnic minority groups particularly hard? Ah, uh, yes, because uh, unemployment is really a big problem in Hong Kong, more specifically during the fifth wave or the COVID-19. As we can observe, and as I can observe, the unemployment rate of the Hong Kong ethnic minority has increased. Ten times than the overall unemployment rate of the people in Hong Kong. So this is very alarming because ethnic minority really needs a job. And but during the COVID-19, they are the most devastated or affected during the fifth wave. So they are they are under unemployment and underemployment. So so Gigi, um, you know, as far as the demographics of Hong Kong ethnic minority groups concerned, the Filipinos uh, is actually the biggest um, ethnic minority group. Um, has it has it hit them particularly badly compared with other groups? Why is that? Uh, because it depends on the workplace that we are in. Most of the Filipinos are working in a service sector, in under the service sector, like bar and restaurant, hotel. Many they are under the category of service sector if we are talking about employment categories, right? Mm-hmm. So, Filipinos also are heavily or severely affected because they are working in the bar and restaurant. As we can see during the COVID, during the COVID-19, so many bar and restaurants are being closed, even hotels and other, uh, what is that, restaurants, they are being closed suddenly because of the pandemic measures. So, Filipinos are also being affected during the fifth wave. They have lost their jobs. There is nowhere for them to look for a job just to fill in the, the needs for their uh, daily livelihood. So it is, it is very difficult for the Filipinos also. Not only Filipinos, but also other ethnic minorities. Because some ethnic minorities, they are not used to work in a bar. They have different category of type of jobs. Especially like the Muslim, Indian, something like that. They have their own uh, preferred job, but they are also severely affected. If we can see it in general general uh, scenario, we are all affected. Mr. Chair, is that, yes. uh, is that what you've been hearing too? Yes, yes. Uh, certainly. Yes, it's, uh, uh, Unemployment has been really pervasive. Right. And I know like in, in the first half of the program, we, we talked about uh, discrimination against uh, um, ethnic minorities. I have an email here from Thomas. Uh, he says, uh, during my recent apartment search, I was asked by every single agent I contacted what my nationality was before they would agree to show me an apartment. This despite the recent government drive to stop discrimination against minorities from landlords. And uh, that email is from Thomas. Mr. J. Um, yes. Have you have you heard about uh, um, cases like that recently? Oh yes, it's it's been uh, rather common uh, that uh, uh, ethnic minorities have really difficult time looking for even 
uh, subdivided flats. Okay. So it's, it's again it's um, um, the uh, discrimination in Hong Kong against ethnic minorities uh, so pervasive that it's horrible. Right, and we now have a new Labour and Welfare Secretary. Uh, what do you hope to see from him? Well, I I, I think one thing for sure, uh, policymakers must be, you know, make more aware of cultural sensitivity. Somehow, um, ethnic minorities have long been forgotten. Uh, let's, let's just take um, housing as an example, because we know the average uh, household size of the ethnic minority is 4.8, versus the Hong Kong household size of, you know, average household size of 2.7. So in other words, ethnic minorities' families are larger. So if policymakers build more public housing, and they look at the figure of 2.7 in, in, instead of 4.8. So the outcome? Well, the outcome is read office. That means ethnic minorities' families, if they're waiting for proper housing, they have to wait for a long, long time. I'm not saying others are not waiting for a long time, but uh, compared with um, local Chinese uh, ethnic minorities' citizens, they also have to wait exceptionally long. So, Asa Malik, um, you're with yes. the Commission on Poverty. Can you tell us um, some of these stories that you, you come across with the ethnic minority groups living in these uh, extremely uh, crowded housing? Regarding the housing, I think it has been um, a huge issue among all the uh, Hong Kong people, actually. But most importantly for ethnic minority, because as... Um, earlier speaker had mentioned because of the nationality and um, most of the time uh, owners are the property agents they refuse to rent out houses to a lot of our service users because of their nationality food family size and all so it's been a huge issue but i hope it will improve in the future but at the moment uh, it is the case, but uh, for the public housing, as uh, we are all aware that uh, most of the ethnic minority families are bigger in size. So the apartment public housing is offering are uh, relatively smaller. So uh, we have been lobbying and saying if it's possible to build a bigger apartment or um, also to provide two apartments to one of the bigger families. And a lot of our uh, service users have actually received two public housing apartments if they are bigger in sizes. Yeah. yeah, so Gigi, we, we're talking about how this, the, all these problems worsened um, over the fifth wave of the pandemic. People lost their jobs, they can't pay their rent. What happens to them? For, uh, for those who are who are in the public housing, uh, no, no. So we talked about the fact that many people have lost their jobs. Yes. Then they can't pay their rent. What happens to them then? Yeah, that is what also my point is that not all has acquired public housing, and then they are working there, and then they lose their job. So what what happened then? They don't have money to pay the rent, so we become homeless, right? So. Even of, even our salary, we almost pay fifty percent almost of our salary. And then what happens if we lose our job? Where we go then? We become homeless. 
So, wh- right? so where are they? They, they, they? So there's an increase in homelessness. They are using about. their own TVs. This is what we call, this is a common problem now, because when we, we, they lost their job, what, what they reported is that they are using their own savings, and the savings is already gone. So what happened after that one? So supposedly saving is for their time to, for retirement, for emergency, but this time their saving is being used not only for housing, even for their daily, daily needs, food, something like that. So it is difficult, especially for Filipinos, that things happen like that. Because we need to pay our rent, we lose our job. If we have a job that is only, we are underemployed, or they are underemployed because they don't have temporary employment, or temporary, they only have temporary employment, meaning they are just working part-time, not full-time, because it's difficult to find a job right now All during right. the pandemic. Yes. Uh- all right, Ms. Malik, I know you have to rush off soon. So um, do you have other suggestions for the government to, to help uh, improve the situation of ethnic minorities, especially when it comes to uh, unemployment? Right. Uh, during the pandemic crisis, as I have seen, government actually offered financial assistance, uh, such as temporary unemployment relief schemes, consumption vouchers, which are extremely helpful to a lot of families. However, families face difficulties to pay rent and daily expenses due to large increase in unemployment. I truly believe as a Hong Kong community, uh, we should provide more fair employment opportunities to ethnic minorities, uh, despite of language barrier and ethnicity, as we mentioned earlier. And um, most importantly, I think we should promote cultural sensitivity in all the sectors, both the government and private sectors as well. All right, uh, that's Ansa Majid Malik, a social worker from the Kowloon Karatas Community Centre a, and also a member of the Commission on Poverty. Thanks very much for joining us this morning. Now, uh, Mr. Jai, what, what you, what's your view on her suggestion? I mean, Ms. Malik, she suggested, uh, um, of course, uh, to, to, uh, to urge the government to provide a fair opportunity to ethnic minorities and uh, to uh, sort of help educate uh, the public so they can be more culturally sens- sensitive. Oh, I, I agree with that 100%. Particularly um, in Hong Kong, it's more ethnocentric and uh, we, we don't talk much about multiculturalism, uh, you know, embracing diversity, inclusion. Uh, those are slogans and, uh, you know, people should really put them into practice, but we don't see that much. And uh, I, I think somehow the whole um, society should be somewhat educated in, in those uh, uh, values. Otherwise, uh, discrimination will, will continue. And uh, what will happen to the community if, uh, for example, if ethnic minorities, they fail to um, properly integrate into society? Well, earlier we talked about segregation. Unfortunately, we, we do have segregation here in Hong Kong uh, because uh, ethnic minorities have been marginalized for a long, long time. So unless we tackle those uh, issues, Head on, um, you know. Well, I, I still think that the, the EOC has been evasive. You know, they they, they can't come up with uh, something more concrete. Uh, same as the government, I, I think uh, there have been talks about cultural sensitivity training. And then my question would be, well, how many have received those training? 
Mm-hmm. Are those training effective? What are the outcomes of those training? So we've got to you know, have answers to those questions. Otherwise, we're, we're beating around the bush and uh, we are not addressing the, the, the key issue of discrimination in Hong Kong. Yeah, um, yeah, that's a, that's an interesting question. You talk about integration and, and educating people uh, against racial discrimination. I mean, if you think about the everyday life of the taxi driver you mentioned, for example, um, he probably doesn't come across um, that many ethnic minority groups. And even if you give him a lesson on, on these other things you must do, does that actually help? Well, what worries me is that, in fact, many taxi drivers are doing that denying ethnic minorities access to the vehicles, not providing services. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, it's happening day, you know, day in and day out. Uh, earlier, uh, your email uh, talked about uh, uh, looking for flats. Uh, yeah. If you're being uh, an ethnic minority, well, I challenge you, if, see if you can get a flat uh, with, with uh, you know, five choices. Yeah. I doubt it. Okay. So, so, so we, we, we are way behind somewhat ideal as you know, equal opportunities. We, we are not there yet. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. Thank All you right. very much, John Jer from Hong Kong Thank Unison. And, uh, also many thanks to uh, Gigi, a program officer at the Hong Kong Community Networks Link Centre. It's and now coming up to 18 minutes past nine and it's time for us to move on to our next topic and it's about dim sum. It's uh, not my favourite kind of food but I do eat it occasionally with my family. Um, what about you, Jenny? <laughs> I haven't been to dim sum for so long I've forgotten what it's like I don't think I've so been not, since the start of the pandemic so you're not a big fan then I guess I, I like it I just haven't been able to go because well, of this pandemic well I've got good news for you Jenny a um, new study by the uh, Centre for Food Safety has found less salt in dim sum so I guess uh, that means it's healthier mm-hmm. um, to tell us more about the findings of this study we're now joined by Dr. Samuel Young, a consultant for community medicine and risk assessment and communication at the Centre for Food Safety good morning Dr. Young. Hi, good morning. Thanks for joining us on the program. So um, can you first tell us more about uh, the findings of your study? Uh, yes, sure. So before that, uh, perhaps uh, let me talk about uh, something about sodium first. Okay. So uh, sodium, although it's uh, essential uh, for body functions, but taking too much sodium will increase the risk of developing high blood pressure. And high blood pressure is also risk factors for other diseases like uh, heart attack, stroke, and other chronic diseases like kidney disease. But here comes the questions on how much is too much sodium. Uh, the World Health Organization has recommended an intake of sodium uh, for an adult uh, to be less than 2,000 milligrams of sodium each day, which is equivalent uh, roughly to uh, 5 grams of salt, and uh, which amounts to uh, less than one level teaspoonful of salt. Uh, the fact is that the vast majority of the population in Hong Kong uh, has dietary intake of sodium exceeding this level. So uh, sodium reduction uh, in our diet uh, should be targeted as the whole population. Okay. Uh, on this background, uh, we, all, we did a study on the dim sum, uh, sodium content in the dim sum in Hong Kong. Uh, dim sum is, uh, fav- is one of the favorite dishes for local population, especially, say, amongst family members or, or people who like to chat uh, during having uh, some dim sums. So we want to look at the latest situation and also uh, with the will to provide advice on how to enjoy dim sum in a healthy way. 
So uh, we took 120 foot samples of uh, some 12 type, types of common dim sum uh, available from uh, Chinese restaurants and dim sum shops. Uh, we have a few uh, findings and observations. Um, the first is that uh, when compared with previous study results, uh, the current study reveals that there was indeed a decreasing trend in the sodium content in dim sum. Uh, the average dim sum level in some types of dim sum has decreased by, say, 20, 30, or in fact, 40 percent. So this is encouraging. Uh, this reflects that the trait, the food trait, has indeed been working on reducing sodium levels of, of dim sum and making them less salty. Uh, this also reflects that the local consumers are more adapting to a less uh, salty taste. Um, our second finding is that the sodium content uh, varies between dim sum. Uh, dim sum such as the uh, dim sum siu mai and the spring, spring roll with uh, shrimp ha gun and also steam uh, means beef ball or yokao have a relatively high level of dim sums. So consumers should be aware of that. Mm -hmm. uh, we also know that uh, the sodium content within the same type of dim sum varies. Say, for example, within the same type of dim sum, uh, the sodium can, uh, level can double or more than two times uh, between the same types of, of dim sums. That this reveals that there are possibilities for the trait to reduce the sodium content in this, dim, this kind of dim sums. So, Dr. Young, you, you talked about uh, how siu mai and uh, mm -hmm. shrimp, uh, shrimp spring rolls, they right. uh, contain more sodium than some of the other dim sums. So, which, I mean, according to your study, which dim sum is uh, the healthiest? Oh, uh, we, in, in our study, the plain uh, rice rolls, the, uh, the plain rice rolls have xing chang fan, is, uh, have the lowest level. So, uh, but this type of Jing Chang Fan, we, we only tested for the Chang Fan without testing the uh, without uh, accounting for the source. Yeah, so 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 that's the thing about the sources, Doctor Young, isn't right, it? Right. When you when you have the Chang Fan, you, you you add your sesame, your soy sauce, whatever. What is the sodium content in those condiments? Yes, it is. They're very. Yes, you, you have raised a very important point. Uh, we also look at the these sodium content in and sources. Uh, we look at uh, four types of uh, sauces, the soy sauce, uh, sweet sauce, uh, the uh, Worcestershire sauce, and the sesame sauce. Uh, the soy sauce has the highest level, uh, which amounts to uh, 2,600 milligrams per 100 grams. Uh, but surprisingly, a, a sweet sauce uh, ranked second is up around uh, 2,400. So it is more or less the, uh, similar to soy sauce. So uh, consumers should be aware of that. The, uh, ironically, sweet sauce it should be taste sweet, but it has a high uh, sodium content. Uh, talking about sauce, we are, our findings also find that uh, when we add the, when we add the sauce to the dim sum, mm -hmm. it can increase the amount of sodium significantly. Now, for example, uh, if we add half of the uh, soy sauce. Uh, provided by the restaurants, it would actually double uh, the amount of sodium intake. So the half of the soy sauce amounts to uh, one uh, tablespoon, which is 15 ml 
Mm-hmm. So it's not a lot. So it actually doubles the amount uh, of uh, sodium when we are taking, having uh, the Ngao Yuk Chun Gyun. So what recommendations do you have for people who actually like them some? What's the best way to consume it without the sauces? <laughs> no, no, yeah. no, uh, no uh, the, the sauces, some, some type of dim sum actually have, uh, have to taste with the sauce. But uh, consumers have to pay attention to the sodium content of dim sums, and they have to choose carefully uh, when, when they are ordering. So uh, also when um, having the dim sum which uh, serve with sauce, they can request the restaurants to uh, serve the sauce separate from the dim sum. So before actually having a taste, uh, before actually having add the, add the uh, sauce to dim sum, they can taste the dim sum first to see whether they actually need the sauce. And if they really want to add the sauce, they want to dip the dim sum sparingly to the sauce first. Yeah, so, so we know that in Hong Kong, especially with the elderly population, gathering for a dim sum lunch is kind of a daily event, right? right? What impact does that have on their health? <clears throat> um, because uh, uh, dim sum is, is uh, we have noted dim sum is not the first uh, major uh, con- sodium contributor. It ranked about uh, the, uh, the fourth and the fifth uh, major contributors of, our, uh, dim- of sodium in our diet. Uh, sauce and condiment rank the first. So people can actually enjoy uh, having dim sum healthily, but they need to know uh, that they have to, what kind of dim sum to choose and how to uh, enjoy the dim sum healthily. For example, uh, not adding the sauce, uh, say, at the first instance. They have to taste it first uh, and then eat it sparingly. Yeah, so my question was, uh, if you eat too much dim sum with too much sauce, uh, high blood pressure for one thing, but are there other health consequences that you can think of? Oh, the, ma- the major uh, concern is the uh, uh, is high blood pressure, but uh, it is not only for people who have hypertension. It's for people who seemingly are look healthy, because uh, what, when you are having too much sodium uh, today, you may develop hyperpressure uh, sometimes later. So it's actually uh, for the whole population to reduce the sodium uh, intake, for, uh, because we know that most of the people in Hong Kong, the vast majority of Hong Kong people in Hong Kong are having uh, sodium level intake above the WHO recommendation uh, level. Now you said uh, we should uh, choose carefully when it comes to dim sum. Um, what about uh, just uh, drinking more tea? Would, would that help dilute the salt, uh, the, the sodium intake? Uh, well, the, the, the fact that is, is it doesn't. Uh, once we have uh, intake, we've taken the sodium, the sodium will be there. And even if you drink a lot of tea or water, uh, although you diluted the, 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 the sodium in the stomach, but the total amount will be remain the same. So the effect is similar. Um, well, so sodium is one thing. Have you considered looking at other aspects of dim sum or, in fact, restaurant food in general? What about fat? What about sugar? Uh, in we, we, our current study uh, mainly focus on the um, uh, focus on the uh, sodium level in dim sums. But people uh, will, uh, if choosing the dim sum, they will choose, uh, say, less with less salt. Uh, with less uh, sugar, of course, they will be beneficial to the health. 
Um, apart from that, we, apart from providing advice to the consumers, we will work with the trade. Uh, we'll advise the trade to reformulate the um, the dim sums because uh, most of the salt, most of the salt, the sodium in the dim sums are from the uh, condiments that's added to the dim sum uh, during preparations. Uh, although the ingredient itself, the meat, the 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 the, the 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 uh, shrimps or the chickens themselves may have some some level of sodium, but majority mm-hmm. are the added salt and the condiments. So we will later work with the uh, food trade and to work on that. Okay, all right, uh, Dr. Young. I'm afraid uh, we're running out of time, and uh, talking about dim sum is uh, just making me very hungry, Jenny. <laughs> me too. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again for joining us this morning, and that's uh, Dr. Samuel Young, a consultant for community medicine and risk assessment and communication at the Centre for Food Safety. Many thanks also to you who commented or emailed us today, and also to my co-host Jenny Lam and my producer Yuki. Now here's the weather before we go. It will be fine and hot. The very hot weather warning is in force. Highs expected today of around 35 degrees. Winds light to moderate east to southeasterlies. And the outlook, very hot with sunny intervals tomorrow. A few showers later this week. Right now it's 30 degrees, relative humidity 70%. The Electoral Affairs Commission has published proposed guidelines on election-related activities in respect of the rural representative election for public consultation. Send written views by August 9th or share them at a public forum on July 21st. View the proposed guidelines at www.eac.hk, the Registration and Electoral Office and Home Affairs Inquiry Centres. For inquiries, call 2891-1001. It's 9.30, the news with Andrew Shirovsky. Thank you, Janice. Sri Lanka's President Gotabaya Rajapaksa has fled the country with members of his family following months of mass protests over the island's economic crisis. Asha's France Press says the president's military plane has landed in the Maldives. The CEO of Citibus says it's the right time and necessary for a merger between his company and New World First Bus, which was given the go-ahead yesterday by Exco. Richard Hall said rather than reducing competition and choice to passengers, the single branch...